The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. Legendarium. He's, got the, he's got the silky smooth voice of a, you know, a guy who kind of rips off old widows, you know. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host. Today is episode number 232, Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. I'm very excited for this one, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But first, let's introduce our panel. Well, right over there, he's like an onion because, believe it or not, I will cry when I'm chopping him into pieces. It's Ken Johnson. I am going to lock you in a 15th century knight's flu tomb. <laughs> And if you found him in a Zoltar machine, he'd grant precisely none of your wishes. It's Andrew Clavin. <laughs> That's so true. That is so true. <laughs> uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, Andrew Clavin is a best-selling author of many, many, many books. Uh, I, I went and counted, and turns out I'm not smart enough to count that high. So, uh, but you had you, to take off your shoes. <laughs> but you are... You're also the host of a show on The Daily Wire and the author of a recent book that that's kind of interesting because it was uh, also a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I put it out as a podcast first because I spent most of my life as a crime writer and this story came to me and it was a suspense fantasy story. It's still, it's still a suspense story like what I usually write, but it also had this big fantasy element and I thought I can publish this, but no one's going to buy it. Uh, because they, it's not the kind of thing I usually do. So I put it out as a podcast. My pal Michael Knowles uh, did the voiceover on it, and my, the guys at the Daily Wire chipped in and helped get the sound quality right. And it just took off. I mean, it was just a big, a big success. So now it's coming out as a book. Uh, it's been really gratifying. We've done two seasons. I've got one more left. I just finished the third book. And it's basically uh, a story about a guy, uh, a, a guy who's trying to make it in Hollywood and he's not doing such a great job. He's failing. Uh, he knows that his career is going down the tank. And one day he walks through a door and finds himself in a locked medieval tower with a dead woman lying on the floor and a bloody knife in his hand. And the palace guard kicks down the door and arrests him for murder and carries him off and throws him into a dungeon with an ogre in it. And so he, he finds himself in this kind of magical kingdom where he's accused of murder. And every now and again, he goes through another door and he winds up back in Hollywood and he finds that people are after him and he doesn't know why. And so these two thriller stories, one in this kind of magical kingdom and one in this not so magical Hollywood uh, come together and they sort of interweave with each other uh, and work each other out. And it's uh, it's kind of different. I've never seen anybody kind of work a plot quite like that. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. And like I said, I just about four days ago, finished the third final book in the trilogy. And I'm really happy the way it came out. That's fantastic. Nice. I, I do love a good portal book. Although that one, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's almost ripped from the headlines. That's like any Thursday night for me, you know, <laughs> you, you play a lot of guys in Hollywood yeah. that happens. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and you, uh, as is the case with our author's shelf series, you pitched a book to us today uh, to, for us to discuss. And so we are going to talk about that now. Um, but, before we do, I'll just encourage everybody to go check out Another Kingdom, whether you do that in podcast form or novel form. I actually picked up, uh, sitting here on the desk, I picked up the hardcover at Barnes & Noble because, mm -hmm. quite frankly, as my wife said, this is about the most attractive cover I think I've ever seen. Uh, it's fantastic. Great it is, yeah, it's good. Um, so if nothing else, the cover's great and I've, I've got it on my desk. I'm looking forward to reading it. I've, I've actually listened to a few episodes of the podcast and uh, don't tell him I said so, but Michael Knowles has just got such a silky smooth delivery. He's, <laughs> he's so good at, at, uh, narration, but I, know, I, I don't want to inflate his ego too much. He's got going on, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, he's got the, he's got the silky smooth voice of a, you know, a guy who kind of rips off old widows, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> a terrific job. Really All does, right. Well, yeah. let's talk about doomsday books. So, uh, as we get started on this, I'll say spoiler alert, just a heads up. If you have not read this, uh, be aware that we are going to be talking about it, uh, in its entirety. But I think for the first few minutes, we can try to not get too deep into the actual ending when we do that, I will give you another more serious spoiler alert. Uh, but for the moment, I will say I highly recommend this book. But I will say that for our audience, uh, because we're used to a very different type of uh, fantasy or sci-fi novel, 
uh, this is it, this is different, and so very much so. Yeah, you, you've got to commit to this one if you're used to the kind of stuff that we're used to reading. And I'll get more into that in just a moment. But I, I highly recommend it. Uh, but go with your um, with with your mind open, ready for a different type of book. So, right. Ken, you've got a recap for us. I do. Hit me with it. All right. What logistical and physical obstacles would one face if they suddenly found themselves in a less advanced time or if they found themselves dealing with a less advanced problem in a more advanced time? Those are the challenges faced in the decidedly not time travel story Doomsday Book. The story follows Kivrin, a young Oxford historian, as she sets her way back machine and peabotters the way back to the 14th century of England, also known as the muckhole of history. However, before she can actually find herself... Or before she can get there, she finds herself accidentally at the start of plague season and she helps inadvertently set off a flu epidemic in 2054. So a sickness quickly knocks off her research and uh, simultaneously Oxford descends into panic, leaving Kivrin's means of rescue in peril. She tries to prevent being burned at the stake. Folks in the good old 21st century talk about their problems. Death is everywhere, as Depeche Mode would say, in both times. But once everyone figures out what the heck is going on, Kivrin's father figure, along with time's most annoying sidekick is able to mount a rescue mission and bring her home. In the end, Kivrin comes to realize that most of what was terrible, uh, most of what she experienced was terrible, but there were some wonderful things out there too. So two questions. Based on this book, how many human themes can seem to have stand the test of time between centuries? And number two, if you're opening up the most dangerous time in human history to firsthand temporal research, would your first choice of historian be just one solitary, inexperienced grad student with zero backup? Those are the questions to ponder. And remember, just like in Clavin, there are no E's in Doomsday Book. All right. So uh, thank you, Ken. Yep. That, that was just delightful. So we'll get to those questions. We'll keep those in mind. Uh, but I want to kick it to Andrew for a general question first. Uh, this is the book that you pitched to us. Uh, we said, we, you know, we'd love to have you on, but what book do you want us to read? This is what you chose. Uh, tell us why. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you said this is not the usual book you read. And the reason that's uh, kind of caught my attention immediately is because this is not a genre that's my first go-to genre. And, and I'll tell you why. Science, let's call it science fiction and fantasy. I, I find that the ideas in books like this are always fascinating. I see the jacket. I read the cover. I always want to get into it. And yet, when I get into it, I find that it is not connected to real life. It's the, either in fantasy, I find the characters too big and too mythic so that I, I don't recognize them. And in science fiction, I frequently find that the idea, which sometimes is, is absolutely brilliant, comes first. It comes before the characters. And I read fiction to sort of uh, give myself more experience of life. That's what I think fiction does. It expands your experience of life. When I find a science fiction or fantasy book that is filled with rich human beings acting the way human beings act in these extraordinary circumstances, I find it some of the most gripping fiction uh, I can think of. And that's what I found with this. I found reading this book was like eating cake. I loved every minute of it. Uh, <laughs> it, it took you into this, into this time travel scenario, which was worked out just well enough so you, you didn't have any big questions about it. I mean, I've, I've worked in Hollywood and I've pitched tra time travel stories and there's always some idiot executive or executive assistant who says, but the story has to make sense. And I always say it can't make sense because you can't it's, travel. Because it's time travel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Only reality makes sense, you know. And and she solved those problems without kind of getting in your way and gave you enough so you didn't have to think about it. And then presented, I just thought, a story so deeply human and spiritual without being uh, supernatural in a cheap way that I just found it incredibly enriching. I was there, I was in that moment. She humanized people in the Middle Ages who so often come across as uh, stand-up stock characters. Uh, and, and I was just incredibly carried away by the way, the fact that she's walking into plague times and that a plague, a flu uh, is going through um, Oxford in the future reminds us that we're really only like a, a paper thin wall away uh, from the end of civilization at any given moment. I mean, any time there's always like a germ that could wipe us out. I mean, so you can't even see and could take us out. And so that helped also to humanize the people in the past. And I just, you know, Willis, I found out by researching, uh, is a, a Christian. She uh, has different politics than I do, but she shares a religion. And I thought she managed through sheer, the sheer, through depicting the sheer pain of living, 
to show you the beauty of her faith without once having a demon appear or, you know, magical angels fall out of the sky, just by showing you how human beings act when they're motivated by faith. I just found it incredibly moving, incredibly deep and incredibly uplifting. And most of all, the biggest thing for me, I found it incredibly human. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. You mentioned her politics. I, I did not do any research into her politics, but yeah. the beauty of a book like this, I think, is that uh, I agree her characters are so well drawn and so recognizably human that uh, when you when you boil a story down to its most human element it kind of doesn't matter what somebody's partisan affiliation is or something like that mm-hmm. um it those things are kind of fleeting and surface it's not that they don't matter i, I don't wanna, i don't want to say they don't matter uh but <laughs> does that make sense like it, when when we're talking about those deep human elements it doesn't matter what somebody's politics are. It matters yeah. what somebody's outlook on human beings is. Well, mo- um, mostly it's because at the base level, there is humanity. And that's, I, I, I think, in my opinion, that's baser than, you know, politics or belief or anything. If you can, <laughs> Let's find a different word. It's baser. Yeah, I know baser. what you mean. <laughs> it's, more, it's more base. I don't know. It's, it's, it's more basic. basic. Let's, let's go, go with basic. Uh, it, yeah. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, but... It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got, you know, at, at the very base, you've got your your basic needs, and and then we can build whatever we and want. Then you can on top build, of yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And politics is is built so on humanity. So I, I want to talk about something else you said, Andrew. Uh, you said this whole book is like reading cake, uh, and I really want to I want to play on that because for me it was not. Uh, okay. When I got to the end of this book, I I couldn't put it down. I closed the last page, and I just. Oh, whoa, I got to decompress. My wife is like, are you okay? <laughs> you know, and I'm like this, that was an amazing book. But I will say the first half or so, um, it felt more like I was getting ready to make a cake and I'm gathering all these ingredients and it was, you know, it's kind of a chore. You got to, okay, mix this. And oh, did I read the, the, did I read the labels right now? And I'm putting everything together. And it, when it finally started coming together and when I finally started to realize what it was that she was writing and what it was that she was doing and it started to click, it was like the cake coming out of the yeah. oven for me. And so, uh, so I, I did eventually get there, but that first half of the book, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I got an email from, uh, from the woman who was helping coordinate, uh, your appearance on the show. And she said, yeah, he's he's chosen Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. He, he says says it's a really moving book. And I'm halfway through it and going, really? Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. see, now, th- this may be, I, I lived in England for a long time. Yeah. Uh, my son just graduated from Oxford, so I know the area and I know the way they talk. And I, fi- I found it an, a tremendously uh, witty um, an accurate depiction of like the, of British society. I thought it was really well done that way. I was sucked into it almost immediately. I got I've got to be honest. I'm I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. For the, for me, there's always a moment in a in a great story where you say like, oh, like I get it. You know, I get it. Like Bruce Willis is stuck in a building barefoot, and there's terrorists <laughs> taking over the building. I get, I get what the story is, and I got that very quickly with this, as they kind of, you know, as the as the flu sort of crept in, and she's, you know, talking about going back in time, and uh, and I thought like, oh, this is going to be, you know, so I was like, this is going to be good pretty early on. Yeah, and and again, you know. The, the humanity, what you were saying uh, about humanity kind of uh, overtopping philosophy and I think every, but just about everything, um, I thought I was just gripped by the relationships, the, the father figure that she has, uh, the annoying, uh, the annoying sidekick. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was all so real and subtle uh, that I was just t- carried away by it. Yeah. yeah, there are little things that she does um, that I I'm going to go back to what I was saying earlier about how this is not the type of book that we're used to reading on the Legendarium. Right. And I'm actually really glad about that because it was a great exercise in me, you know, getting out of our little bubble that we've kind of put ourselves in with epic fantasy. Uh, and in this one, there were little, what I assumed to be Chekhov's guns, just scattered all over the place. You've got Mrs. Dobson. She's the overbearing mother that comes to Oxford and, She's just constantly on everybody's case about safety and whatnot. Uh, and then there's Colin, the annoying sidekick, and he's right. got this gobstopper. 
and uh, that he keeps he's constantly out taking back, out the yeah. gobstopper and he's checking the color of the gobstopper. And I, so I'm waiting for something like, okay, so Mrs. Dobson is going to have this redemption arc and she's going to save the day somehow, or, you know, the, the gobstopper is going to come out. It's going to plug the hole in the space time continuum or something. And none of that happens. And when I figured out, when I figured out that none of these Chekhov's guns were ever going to go off, I just, I understood, okay, so this is just color. The, through the the world this is her uh injecting sure. that realism you know that that uh, colin is a kid he has a gobstopper he loves gobs gobstoppers that tells you something about him and that's all that it really needs to accomplish um anyway so once i once i got that once that kind of clunked into place in my head uh that it wasn't that type of book that i was expecting then i really started to settle in yeah that, that, that to me is, is really interesting because one of the problems I have, I wrestle with with fantasy, uh, there's, there are some people who do it so well. I mean, obviously, Tolkien creates these characters that are so real, and yet they're in this mythic situation that the mythic situation itself becomes real. Uh, I think the, the television show Game of Thrones, that's what everybody loved so much about it, was that you knew, you know, those were people you knew. You, you know, you cared what happened to them. But so often I find the minute I get to the funny names in fantasy and the guy is named, you know, Goran from Aguar, I think like, yeah, I don't know this guy and I don't know who he is. <laughs> so, so a guy with a gobstopper gets me. I mean, it does because I realize that, you know, she is telling you something just about that person. That's the person who's now in your life. Uh, it's someone you've now met and know. And I, and I just find that uh, to me, it's at the core of my reading experience all the time. So can yep. two main characters, uh, we've got Kivrin, the right. time traveler. She's back in the Middle Ages. And then we've got Mr. Dunworthy. Uh, right. her mentor who's trying to who's the father figure. reopen reopen the gate and get her back uh did one of those two or did anybody else in the story kind of uh, reach out and grab you as somebody to identify with i liked mr dunworthy a lot and maybe it's because i'm getting older i don't know and so <laughs> it's, i it's true you are a very old man uh, you know it's good it's good that todd's not here but thankfully andrew is so <laughs> but, so i'm not the oldest however i i, I very much get now that whole sentiment of um, a, a charge or or somebody who I, I care about their their professional and and have come to care about their personal well-being and I want to be able to I don't know, fix their problems, I guess, maybe not quite as dire or as their trap. Or protect them, but or, yeah, or, you know, it's... It, exactly, yeah. That, that urge. Yeah, you want to move them forward, so I, I get that a lot. I... I <laughs> Funny that I, I found myself really, and, and this is just the, the base me, but when he uh, actually finds out that, that Gilchrist closes the the net and he confronts Gilchrist about it and he didn't just turn around and slug him, I, I was left a little disappointed. <laughs> per personally, I was, but for the story, it worked out. I don't no, think I, I, I don't think it would have worked out if he had actually slugged him, but... I, I was personally left unsatisfied I, that he didn't. I, I get so. uh, I get the Mr. Dunworthy thing. Um, I, last summer, I had the opportunity to mentor an intern who came and worked oh, yeah. at the company that I'm at. As a 21-year-old college student, she was fantastic, sharp as a tack. Um, but I found by the end of the summer, I was I, I kind of had that strange parental instinct, you know, right. where you, you want the best for this person. Oh, yeah. and you want to teach them everything and you want to protect them and all this stuff. Uh, it's, so it's a very it's it's a real I, urge there. Yeah, I've done it many times through uh, through radio and everything, and but I, bringing them. I might, and, uh, but I might go with Kivrin. She's the one that I identified with a little bit more. Well, just it's because she's the girl. Sure. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> I really identify with the curiosity that she has. She just has this burning need to go explore and see and learn and understand. Right. Um, and that's something that that I identify with quite a bit. What about you, Andrew? Well, you know, I, obviously, Kivrin is the character who takes you through the story and who, who really did. I found her a very gripping, very real, relatable character. Uh, Dunworthy is a little easier for me to identify with, especially toward the end, uh, as um, he becomes one of the centers of, of love and caring, which is really what I think the book is about and how this, this kind of links people through time and it links people uh, over time. I have to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on their names, but the two young girls, especially the little girl, oh, yeah, are yeah. so well written. Uh, and it's hard to write children, you know, and, and they're just so unsentimentally written. And I love kids. And I just thought, the, you know, I don't want to I don't know how you guys feel about spoilers and all this, but I just felt that that they were the things that kind of 
brought me into that world and made me see that world as my world. You know, it's very hard. It's very hard to do with the Middle Ages. I think the Middle Ages have this kind of otherness about them uh, that you know, I, it's easy for me to get back into even even say. Uh, uh, Regency England, you know, even uh, times that are, are far back before technology or on the cutting edge of, uh, of the Industrial Revolution. But before that, in what somebody once called a world lit only by uh, fire, it, it's, it can be very uh, strange and mythological and distant. And yet those kids were so real. Uh, and as a father, I just knew them right away. Oh, yeah. And it just me. I, I just felt like I was there. I felt like I was in that place. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Agnes and Rosamond. Rosamond. There we go. Um, Rosamond. That's, yeah. So at this point, I have to say uh, our second spoiler alert. Uh, we've talked about the book generally. I think uh, maybe it's time to talk a little bit more about the ending and, and where things go. And so if you haven't read this book and your interest is piqued, uh, come back to this episode after you've read the book. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you're not a person who cares about spoilers, let's soldier on. Perfect. Okay. Agnes and Rosamond. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to recap a little bit, to let people, you know, if it's been a while since you've read the book uh, or if you haven't read it, uh, Kivrin goes back in time and she meets up with this uh, lower... It's kind of a lower tier royal, not royal, but they're upper class people, they're, right? Yeah, they they they're lords of a manor, and so she gets to to kind of be cushy in a manner. And they've got these two girls. Rosamond is thirteen, and she's about to be married off. Uh, and Agnes is what eight or so, uh, five to eight somewhere uh, in there. And uh, and so she's kind of the, you know, the whiny little sister, and uh, but adorable, absolutely adorable. And Kivrin gets really attached to them because as she recovers from the illness that she got coming through the portal, um, she becomes their de facto nurse. Right. And at the end of the book, as the plague is sweeping through the town, it's killing off everybody. These two little girls have been more or less spared. Uh, Rosamond's got it, but looks like she's going to come through. Uh, and then in the last pages of the book, Agnes dies, Rosamond dies yeah. a few pages later, and it's absolutely devastating. I I didn't I didn't realize, uh, it, it, and so if I go back to what I was saying earlier about how the first half of the book kind of felt like a little bit of a chore sometimes, um, I didn't realize the magic that Connie Willis was working on me and how attached I was getting to these characters, and then when things went south, I realized, oh no 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 no, I it, they can't die because yeah. then I'll it it'll destroy me as a reader. Yeah. And Absolutely. then she and then she just takes them out. Oh, oh, oh you're, yeah. You're you're saying the exact same thing I thought, and, and you don't even realize exactly when it happened because because all of a sudden you're like, wait, I care about these characters, and, and not not just those two. Uh, Father Roche. Oh my gosh, I. Uh, yeah. we, we we asked about uh, Dunworthy and, and Kivern, but I think Father Roche was probably my favorite character in this He's entire book. Oh, what a fantastic Let's, character! And and just to see him suffer. Ugh. Was yeah, it was pretty rough. Yeah, let's let's. You know, it's, it's it's interesting too. Well, if I, if I can just say that uh, one of one of my big complaints about uh, Christian literature, Christian movies, it's so bad. They're so bad. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's, it's so um, it's so milky and sweet and unbelievable. And uh, and you watch it and you think like, who would believe, believe in God if uh, if you tell me that that's what the world looks like. And, and one of the things that's missing is, tra you know, Christian fiction and Christian films are missing is, is true tragedy, a true right. sense of just how awful the world can be at its worst. Uh, and also the the, the joy of, uh, of sinning. What a delight it is to actually do things you maybe shouldn't do sometimes. And she just captured the tragic aspect of that. And that what elevated the priest in it to me was the absolute totality of the tragedy when you know there's no answer there's no good answer for when children die anybody who comes up with a cheap religious answer you know god needed the child in heaven or anything like that uh, is really uh, shooting god in the foot and i thought she didn't do any of that she showed it to you in its absolute stark tragic horror and then somehow managed to uplift you simply through the dedication and love that the characters felt for one another and the other thing i just want to throw this in is what is because of feminism, I find that women don't write women well in the past when their options were much uh, smaller. And they always depict these women as rebelling against the constraints of society. But that's not what most people do. Most people live 
bravely or cowardly in the within the constraints of their society. And she showed, especially Rosamond in this marriage, she showed, you know, how she had to maneuver her life uh, to live as a woman in this time, which was a difficult thing to do. I'm sure it was difficult to, to live as anyone in that time. But she, she just pictured it in just such a realistic way. Her imagination, I thought, was just on fire and just uh, it, it was inspiring to watch the author uh, pull it off and, and drag you into that world and the tragedy of the world and the helplessness of it and the faith of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me let me zoom out again and uh, ask about uh, one aspect of the book that becomes apparent very quickly, and that's the parallel nature of what we're seeing in the two timelines. Right. So we've got Kivern in the Middle Ages becoming attached to this family and uh, going through the plague, uh, and then you have Dunworthy, and he is, uh, you know, as soon as Kivern goes through the the tech that opened up the time machine about which we may want to talk later i don't know <laughs> but the tech falls ill and and mr dunworthy realizes that they can't uh open the time machine back up to let kivern come through because the tech is ill and he's in the hospital with this incredible virus uh, and soon everybody's dropping like flies and and right. anyway that's that's what's going on in 2050 ish uh, oxford uh, so what do we make of parallel stories here uh is there anything that we glean from that um i, I think you touched on it a little bit Ken, i did in I, your intro where you talked about uh you know what what are the human elements that survive across centuries and millennia right and i i would imagine that was mostly by design i mean I, you would have That's to kind think of it was written, point, right? written, written by that as the point is is there are these things that that survived the 700 years or survived the dark ages uh and and stand as universal truth like like fear of the unknown i mean here's this this plague in both times that comes on rapidly and now we don't know what to do and so that fear paralyzes everything but you've got these people who are compassionate who are who are charitable who show unconditional love regardless of of the time or regardless of the the quality that you're living in and and i think that was deliberate that she pointed out that some of these things some of these beliefs that people have last through time i th i feel like that's true i mean if you are a charitable person you're a charitable person not because you live <laughs> yeah. you know in a in a first world country sure. or a third world country you just are phone phones and cars didn't make us better people right, right. we're better people <laughs> So, or we're not or we're not exactly <laughs> uh yeah anything to say on that uh note well, andrew well i think certainly uh, the enduring fact of death which i think you know all my pals at the daily wire are big superhero movie fans and i don't like superhero i, I like a superhero movie fan but I, I like a superhero movie but i can't go to one after another after another and they're always giving me a hard time about it why don't you like these films and i say because there's no sex and there's no death and what i mean by that is because the women because the women are super strong and they never get pregnant i don't, I don't even know how you would get inside one of those tight suits so they, they never get pregnant they're not they're, really they're women. spray on they're i think yeah, exactly. They're not they're not women the way that we know women in real life who are, um, you know, need more protection, who get who do have children and so have a whole uh, world of responsibility and um, and pain and love that we don't that we men don't have. So that there's no eros in those movies and people don't really die. They make believe die, but then they come back as somebody else and uh, and people don't really die. But eros and thanatos, sex and death are the things that life is about. And I think that in, in our world, we're so protected by technology that we forget it, but it doesn't cease to be true. And that's and that's one of the things that I think was happening uh, to Kivrin in the story is that she is brought back into the raw fact of those things, the raw fact of sex. You know, before there was birth control, people had sex and then they had children. And that's what happened. And so that created needs in a society, ways of getting people married so you knew who was responsible, uh, things that women had to do to make sure that people knew who, which chi whose child was whose. Uh, all these things kind of develop out of those facts. 
as technology separates us from those things, we lose some of those necessities. And we, you know, things like virginity become less necessary because we can tell whose, whose child is whose. And, and all those systems start to fall apart. But the fact of eros and thanatos, the fact of, de- uh, of sex and death are still at the core of human life. And I thought that that was kind of what was going on is what she was showing you is you can run, <laughs> but you can't hide. And eventually <laughs> life ends. And that you know, it, it ends for just as long now as it did in the 14th century, yeah. namely forever. And know, it's so. and on the 2055 side of things where Mr. Dunworthy is dealing with it, this is a society where they have T-cell enhancements and inoculations yeah. against absolutely everything. Uh, right. and, and then they're confronted with this flu virus that comes when uh, they've, they've opened up a tomb from, from the 1500s. From that, that, yeah. the same village or something like the same village that Kivern is at. Uh, they open up this tomb and the virus has been living in there the whole time and suddenly there's no inoculation for this and so everybody's dropping like flies uh and it, so it's this society that has it, at least thinks that they have overcome some of these things and now they're confronted with the reality of death as you say um and it's uh it, it, in the mr dunworthy storyline in the pre- present quote-unquote present day storyline it's a little more subtle, I think, this uh, confrontation with death uh, and with mortality. It's a little more subtle than what Kivrin is seeing, mm-hmm. um, but no less powerful for that fact, I would say. It's it, it's uh, the overwhelming or the overriding theme that Jeff Goldblum would say, life finds a way. <laughs> or in this case, death <laughs> finds a way. Or it doesn't. So, exactly. Yeah. Or it doesn't. Um, yeah. And, and since death is, is for, you know, forever, I mean, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, it is an afterlife. This this life ends and it ends forever. Um, that, that fact remains very important, whether you die after living a incredibly healthy life to the age of 135 or whether you die of the plague at 18. The death is the same thing. And I think that that's the thing that makes makes the story in the past so resonant. You know? Yeah, um, which brings me to something else that uh I thought was really interesting kind of as a, a broad stroke with this book was the horror element. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, but at the end when she's confronting the plague, you know, oh. you, you say death is death is death. It's the same. And in a final way, I think that's true. But then you're confronted with the horror of death by plague mm. uh, in the final pages of the book. And Oh my word. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't have it. Look, I don't have a deep point to make on this other than just, I. Uh, I don't want to die from the plague. I really don't. Yeah. If I yeah. oh, if I had a choice, Los Angeles. You know, they just they just started warning us that with the homeless uh, crisis, we may get the bubonic plague. And I said, wait, that's the Black Death. <laughs> that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So it's you know these things are always around. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, okay, so let's move on then. Uh, Ken, you had a, a point or two that you wanted to bring up as well. I uh, I. I... I found it interesting that she goes back all of this study and all of this theoretical preparation that she goes through to go back to be to to fit in and assimilate with 14th century England and she gets back there and she realizes that she knows nothing. She she's too clean. She can't speak the language even though she she thought she did or could. She uh she doesn't understand understand them. There were several other things um can I but, can yeah, I just please. riff on that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so, as a as a Mormon missionary in France, hardly third world. Uh, I can I can nevertheless somewhat identify with that. I showed up. I'm 19 years old, fresh off the plane. I I did eight weeks of language training in Provo, Utah. And, you know, and I'm like, all right, I speak French. I had three years of high school and eight weeks at the missionary training center. And I get off the plane, and somebody says something to me, and I just I I beg your pardon. <laughs> you know, uh, what are what are these what are these strange customs you have other Western country? Right. You know, it's and, and so you you think, all right, I'm prepared. I'm going to I know exactly what I'm yep. going to be doing. And then uh, you get into that other situation and you had no idea yeah. what was coming. And I, I went through the same thing, but it was funny to see it written out like that because I it, it's almost universally true that that's what happens. You can you can study and prepare theoretically for anything until you actually get into it and, and the best laid plans are only successful right up until the, mm-hmm. the moment of implementation yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah I, I i lived in england for a long time and they, they speak you know they, they what do they call two countries separated by a common language uh and you know they speak english 
they sound like people we know and we see in the movies and all that. So you think you know something. And then you realize not only do you not know their culture or their world or their mindset at all, but you don't know anybody else's culture or country or mindset until you get there, until you actually live there for a little while. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is, you know, people go on these week-long tours and you come back and say, oh, well, what's France like? But you don't really know until yeah. you actually live there and, you know, and meet with the people. And I think that that also talks, speaks to the li- limits of science and its ability to predict what's going to happen and our sense. I mean, I always say if you read the news, if you read the newspaper or whatever, however you get your news, you read the news and you take out all the predictions, uh, you'll be a lot happier. Because there's always somebody <laughs> disaster, and and he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future any more than you or I do, right. you know. And and so I thought like it it really did speak to the limitations of science. I really liked, by the way. I don't know how you guys felt about this. I really liked the the time travel uh, mechanism. Um, oh oh yes, right. yes, okay. Rubbing yeah. my hands together. This is All right. uh, again so different from what we're used to reading. We you know we want hard science fiction, or we, if it's a magic system, we want a magic system with a capital S and we want to know how this thing works and how it's sending her back and all this. And I kept waiting for that for about, you know, for the first half of the book until I realized I wasn't getting it. She, she presents you with uh, what's it called? The net, the net. Yeah. And the net sends you back in time and it takes the, it requires these texts to put in all the numbers and the net won't send anything back in time. That's going to alter the course of history. And so, you know, if you, if you are sick with whatever virus that wasn't present back then, you can't take it through with you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, and I'm like, oh man, I'm really excited to learn more about this net. <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, and you know, and like everything else with this book, it was a shock. But then by the time I realized what was going on and I made my peace with it, it was great. It, I don't need to know all that stuff. I'm just used to knowing it. Right. Um, the the story isn't about the net. The story is about what happens on the other side of it. This this is exactly why I called it decidedly not a time travel story because the mechanism for telling the story is is a time travel device, but the story has nothing to do with time travel. Yeah. She's stuck in the in the 14th century. Actions happening in the 21st, but that doesn't matter. The story is is the people and what's going on. It's yeah, not yeah. the time travel. So is that is that why you bring it up, Andrew? Well, yeah, because I, I love the mechanism that, you know, wh- one of the things you always have to deal with in time travel stories is, wh- you know, how do you keep from altering time? What happens if you alter history? Uh, why don't people come from the future and visit us if you can travel in time? And your thing is just like, the net won't let you. That's just, just the, the way it it's is. A great and I thought, Can't. all right, I'll buy that. You know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if you guys enjoy Philip K. Dick, but it, he oh, would yeah. do things like, you'd say like, he posed this in completely impossible situation that was fascinating, <laughs> absolutely fascinating. And then at the end, it's like, yeah, he, he took a drug and it did that. To, you know, <laughs> like, okay, I guess, you know, I mean, because if the ride is worth it, I really don't want to waste my time. You know, I, I really don't want to waste my time right. figuring out that you, you can't actually travel in time. I know that already. So make it up and get on with the story. <laughs> this is, this is anybody who's ever listened for any measurable amount of time knows how much I, I despise time travel as a story, uh, <laughs> as a story device, but mostly because it's used sloppily or it's used as a crutch or it's used because your story is weak. But in a case like this, where it's just kind of the facilitator for the real story, I don't yeah, mind it's, it. This one, it's not like she's going back in time in order to stop X from happening right, or right. something. It's, uh, she's going right. back as an it's observer. Just, yeah, it's so, just driving the story yeah. forward. So it's, so it's, it's great. Like, it's like Back to the Future. When you watch Back to the Future, it's got a, this, some really hilarious jokes in it. And you just don't care that, it, yeah. you know, it, it really, if you stop and think about it, it makes literally no sense. <laughs> but it's, it's so much fun. You don't you just don't care. You know? right, and absolutely. I think yeah. with this, it's such a human story and such a deep story um, that I just I thought, good, I got it. Give me a sentence. I'm done. You know, yeah. yeah. Now, now, speaking of uh, of which and because we only have a few more minutes with you, uh, Andrew, I, I, let's go from science to faith. And uh, this is uh, the big theme of this book as you get to the end of it is faith. Uh, now, one of the things that I appreciated about the way that she treated it was uh, similar to what we were talking about earlier with the politics and how you just you can't really tell. At no point in this story, even at the very the very bitter end when all the lessons are being learned and all of that stuff, at no point did I ever feel like I had a handle on exactly what she was trying to, you know, preach to me about faith or something. I I never had to deal with that. And I'm glad she presented a situation. The characters had believable reactions to that. And I got to say, you know, I I got to consider what 
I might have done in that situation or how I might come out of it feeling, uh, you know, vis-a-vis faith or sure. a lack thereof. Um, Andrew, what what uh, jumps out to you as far as that aspect of the story, the faith aspect of it? Well, well, the two things that really came through to me was that there was nothing, uh, aside from the time travel, which, you know, is, is a mechanism, there's nothing really that we would think of as spiritually supernatural in the book. And to elevate faith and to show faith in its true nature in the midst of tragedy, and yet not show any angels coming down from heaven, not show people floating up into the sky, is a pretty neat trick. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to do. But by the end of the story, the priest, who kind of seems hapless at times, you know, you're kind of uh, watching him, you're not you're think, thinking, oh, this guy has faith and everything's falling apart. And at the end of the story, you suddenly realize, oh, no, he's the only one who gets it. He's the one who gets it because he has he doesn't have hope. He has faith. You know, <laughs> he knows he knows these things will happen. Uh, and he believe and he believes in in what he's doing so intently that he is able to, like, meet death with love. And in the end, that is what faith is. It's meeting death with love and with hope and and uh, and with charity. And I think that um, that's just a really beautiful thing for Connie Willis to have done, to have pulled off. Um, I, I, it's not that I dislike supernatural stories. It's not that I don't think supernatural stories can speak to faith uh, and, and illustrate faith. I just thought this was really original and different, that she showed you a story without sentiment, uh, without the supernatural. And yet by the end of it, I felt uh, elevated toward faith. I felt moved toward faith by the story that she told. That that to me is a beautiful thing. I did as well. And I, I liked the fact that she showed faith from various perspectives. I mean, Kivrin goes back having faith and, and she kind of, you can see her faith being shaken with each passing death. You're like, you know, she, she tries to reassure people as she goes along and then she finally kind of gives up at the end is like why would this plague come if you know you know she, she's getting angry at yeah God exactly and all that, and all yeah. that but if, if, whereas roshi keeps his faith and and you can see people still maintaining their their belief in the in the 21st century and and with the variety of perspectives it allows somebody like me to go i don't want to be preached at i don't want to be told my faith or my belief is wrong I get something out of this and I get to see different perspectives. There, like there's a moment uh, that I adored. So uh, a real quick explanation. She's, she takes back what she calls a quarter or a recorder. It's right. this thing implanted in her wrist and it's activated when she places her hands together as though she were praying. Right. Um, and that's how she records her experiences. She can kind of disguise uh, what she's doing if anybody's watching her. Um, and then as the plague washes through the town and is taking everybody out, uh, you're getting these vignettes, these recordings into her recorder. Uh, and they, at some point, they turn from recordings that she, you know, she's telling Mr. Dunworthy about what's happening to actual prayers where she's pleading mm. and yelling and, uh, you know, all, all these things. Uh, to God, and, and you don't have any indication that I recall about how religious she is or isn't, but I, right. I did enjoy that moment where, uh, you know, it was a very clever little way for Connie Willis to to kind of make that, that turn in the character uh, and, and show her desperation. Um, anyway, I, I think we'd better call it there because I know Andrew has some other things he needs to get to. Um, and so, Ken, you and I may talk for another few minutes, but Andrew, we will let you go unless you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with on Doomsday Book. No, I just thought, like I said, it's very hard to do big idea uh, fantasy and, and science fiction stories and yet keep characters alive, keep characters real and alive. And when it's done, I find it just some of the most entertaining and enriching uh, kind of fiction there is. And I think this is just a really good example of it. I wanted to drop my favorite line from the book while Andrew's here uh, reading this from in 2019 in America. Nobody would dream of telling you where you can or can't go <laughs> from the Chicago bell ringer. I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, That's good comedy in a 2019 read. Perfect. Well, uh, I know I'll, we're not supposed to get political, but you know, is that a political I, thing? That's really not. It's more of an observa uh, observational thing. So let me uh, just remind everybody one more time. Another Kingdom is Andrew's book. So go check out Another Kingdom by Andrew Clavin. Go check out the podcast by the book. Uh, we encourage you to do so. If uh, if you took any inspiration from 
Doomsday Book, then I am looking forward to reading it even more now. Uh, so I really, I'd like, I'd like to hear what you think. So seeing you have so widely read in the field, I'd like to see what you think of the book. I, I let will let you know. We'll, I'll be all over Twitter with it. I'm sure. So Andrew Clavin, <laughs> thank you again for coming on. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to have you. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Drew. Okay. Cheers. So Ken, Andrew had to go a little bit early, but is there yeah. anything else that we wanted to get to? Oh, oh, I had one. All right. I pretty much just have a final thought. So after, after yours. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my thought was, and, and I was going to say this, but he was on the clock and so we had to go. But um, as he's talking about, you know, you get to the end of the book and, and it was kind of lifting him and pushing him toward faith. I, as I was reading it, I totally get that. Uh, as I was reading it, I can understand where that point of view comes from. Uh, and I was also trying to read it from the perspective of somebody who uh, is not a person of faith. Uh, somebody who's not religious, maybe is atheist or at least agnostic. You know, we have a lot of listeners at, in various uh, uh, states of mind when it comes to that sort right. of thing. Um, and I'd be really curious to hear from some of our listeners uh, who are not people of faith what the end of this book felt like for them, and and you sure. know what it, whether it, uh, whether they felt preached at. Or whether they felt uplifted in some other way. You know, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear about it from some of those people. So make sure, I, I didn't say this at the top of the show, but make sure you go to thelegendarium.reddit.com and uh, join in the conversation on this episode uh, and let us know what your experience was with the end of the book, regardless of what your background is. So definitely uh, look forward to reading those. From a scientific standpoint, this is, I, you know, my wife is zero science fiction fantasy at all. But she's a, a nurse practitioner, loves science, loves medicine. And from that perspective alone, I, I told her, baby, you got to read this book. Do you call your wife baby? I do. Ugh. Mostly as a joke. That's great. But it, it's mostly an inside joke after 23 years of marriage, so I can call her baby <laughs> and get away with it. But, but I, I, I tell her that, I, I told her that several times in this book, you got to read this. She's got her own little book club that's not as fun as ours, but whatever, you know, and I told her. That was her, the most condescending thing you've ever said about your wife. I know. Eh, she's got her own little book club. Her own little yeah. book club. They only meet, you know, in person, whatever. <laughs> so, um, okay. no, but, but I, I told her, yeah, from a science from a science perspective, read this book. Cause a lot of the things that, that she, a lot of the 21st century uh, methods of treatment that she tries to use, uh, implement on the 14th century plague are, are fascinating. Yeah. I don't know how true they are. Cause I haven't done any research. I presume that the author has, but I, I thought it was entertaining at very least. Yeah. I think she would find it too. So if you don't have a science fiction fantasy bent, still read this book. I think it'd be very interesting. Yeah. I, I, Definitely would recommend it to other readers as well. Uh, but I will say this for anybody who has listened to the episode and is uh, kind of ha has had their interest peaked and they're thinking, I'm going to go out and read this. Uh, a word of advice. Normally, I wouldn't say this, but get the Kindle edition. Oh, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you why. I So I did I did my normal thing. I had Kindle and I had the uh, what's the audible. They are, so like I could, whisper sync. And, yeah, whisper yeah. sync. I could switch between the two and all that. Um, that the recording for this book is not new, uh, so right. it's it's not great. Uh, I think the woman who performed it was fine. She really struggles with American accents, which is hilarious, actually, <laughs> yeah. to, to hear the other side of that coin. Um, but even more than the audio version, which is at least okay, um, but I prefer the Kindle, I also ordered the paperback because okay. I, I have a hard... I have a hard copy of every book that we read on the podcast. So I ordered the mass market paperback. Do not order this mass market paperback. Uh, find a different version of it, you know, whether it's a library binding or if you can find a larger hardcover. But, okay. okay, people won't be able to see this. But, Ken, look at this. It's, you know, 500, 600 pages of tiny type, no margins. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not printed very pleasantly. Uh, and I can't imagine that this would have been much fun to read. When I got it, I was thinking... It would be a slow read. I was I was about two-thirds of the way through the book, and I got the hard... or I, it, hard, It's a hard copy. It's a soft cover. I got the mass market paperback in the mail, and, uh, and I cracked it open. I thought, this will help me read it faster so I can get through to the end of the book. And I opened it, and I read about a page, and I said, nope. 
and I pulled out my <laughs> Kindle edition and and went back to that. So uh, that would be a piece of advice. For we we joke about how slow a read it is, but I even commented to you, I was listening to it at double speed and reading along and somehow a minute still felt like a minute <laughs> at double speed. Well, maybe, through, maybe through toward the, the beginning of the yeah, book. Through the first half. Exactly. Yeah. That's through the second half, man, it cooks. Well, yeah, it's just it just gets so emotionally intense yeah. uh, toward the end that it it takes a minute, but you really do get attached to the characters, even the crappy characters from the 21st century that you would just want to punch <laughs> in the face. So, Ken, did you like the book? Liked it, was, it a lot. Okay, and uh, yeah, do you give it a blanket recommendation or like a recommendation for uh, maybe for this kind of person? I I really give it a blanket recommendation if you. It will go in for the books that I kind of typically go in for, meaning the shoot 'em ups, you know, and you want just nonstop level one action. Punching. Yeah, just good old fashioned punching. You might not enjoy this book, but if you can, if you want something a little bit different, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, like I said, my expectations uh, were not met at the beginning of the book. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But once I settled in and understood the type of book that I was reading, yes, much, much appreciated. Right. And like book. I said, if if you have a scientific mind and you're not inclined to science fiction yeah. fantasy, you still might enjoy this book. Very good. All right. Well, let's wrap it up, Ken. Um, uh, our thanks again to Andrew Clavin, who's now gone. Uh, thus, for, thus ends another author's shelf. For appearing on our, our author's shelf series here on The Legendarium. Uh, and so it, we are very grateful for anybody expanding our horizons like this. Yes. This is a great exercise for me and a great book uh, regardless. So thanks for listening, everybody. I'll just remind you, thelegendarium.reddit.com. If you'll visit that, uh, you can join in the conversation after this episode airs and uh, we can hash out the book and the conversation that we've just had. You can mm -hmm. respond to that as well. Uh, go to patreon.com slash legendarium. That's where you can go and support the show. I will admit that I have been lax in my Patreon duties as far as uh, giving people something to go there for. At right. this point, you know, we, we create a ton of free content for you elsewhere, and so I've been neglecting Patreon. Come on, Craig, step but, your game up. Yeah, maybe I should step my game up there. <laughs> so, uh, And then I'm trying to think of what else. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, even though we don't use Facebook anymore much. Not so much. Uh, Instagram, all the other things. Discord. Did we say Discord? Discord, yeah. yeah. If you need an invite to our Discord channel, let me know on Twitter, and I'll send that over to you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye.